Good morning. As some of you know, this special offering we've just taken up, and I'm sure there will be other, uh, there will be people who contribute to it going forward, who either weren't here today or who forgot to bring their checkbook today. Um, part of what it's going to go towards is getting new carpet. So I kind of feel like I should commune with the, with the old carpet a little bit. Like, I feel I'm a bit codependent with this, this awful carpet. Like, it's kind of like we recently, okay, maybe not that much. <laughs> we recently uh, started driving a new car, um, our Toyota Echo from 2002, uh, essentially died. And, you know, I really miss that awful, not so good car, I have to say. And, but, you know, I think we can do with new car, but I think, I think I can reconcile myself to that because it's coming, right? I heard one amen. <laughs> so are we getting used to 1015? This is the second Sunday of 1015. Yeah. yeah. Is that working for you? I heard a yeah, mostly. <laughs> I'll go with that, okay? Um, somebody said to me last Sunday, why, why is it 10.15? And I realized that maybe you weren't here the Sunday where we talked a little bit about that or at the annual meeting uh, when we had someone mention that if you take the bus to Courtright, you can't actually get here for 10. So the reason we're starting at 10.15 is so the people who take public transit can arrive in time for the service. Apparently they get here if they catch that first bus, they get here at around 10.10 or around that time. So, so that's why, if you're wondering why 10.15 is happening. But it's good to be together, isn't it? Yeah, I feel it too. I, I hear it in our singing, and uh, while it's harder for me to see who's here, maybe you should be grateful for that. Um, uh, I love it when we're together in one big group. So today we're continuing our new sermon series on the church and the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians. In John 20, right after the resurrection, Jesus meets with the disciples. He appears to them and he breathes on them, it says. He gives them the Holy Spirit and he sends them out. And, and I love that song we just sang, that uh, breathing is so basic to who we are. And it's life itself to us, right? When we stop breathing, we die. Um, I have a cat allergy. I get asthma around cats. And when I can't breathe, when I'm around a cat, I feel so uncomfortable. I feel terrible. But the Holy Spirit gives us life. And the Holy Spirit enlivens the church, brings the church to life. And so we need more of the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to lean in and we are going to expect the Spirit to show up and to teach us, to change us, to shape us, and to renew us. So Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth to call them back to unity in Christ. We talked quite a bit last Sunday about the history of how this letter came about and the city of Corinth as well. The Christians in Corinth were deeply divided. That is the occasion for Paul's letter. He was really worried about them. And so he starts off by reminding his readers that they are called to holiness, that God has set them apart for a special purpose, and that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Most of all, 
That's what he starts with in chapter 1. But these Christians in Corinth had problems. They had separated into different factions. Each was loyal to a different leader. And they were competing with each other, fighting amongst themselves. They were chasing after the most articulate and wisest speaker they could find. Because the Corinthians loved wisdom. They were looking for significance in their lives based on religion and philosophy. And every option in that regard was offered in the city of Corinth. Every religion in the known world had a temple, had a shrine, had a teacher, had a priest. Now philosophy, the word philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. So philos is love and sophia is Greek for wisdom. And in Corinth, people would seek out wisdom in a way that we probably can't relate to. Our society, I think, tends to treat celebrities or sports stars that way. Anyone else, anyone else in the Raptors bandwagon? Anyone else? Yeah? I think it was a week ago that for the first time I said someone's name out loud. I said, Kawhi Leonard. And my, my, my son's eyes rolled up so far in his head, I swear they bounced off the ceiling and came back down. But I've learned, I've learned, it's Kawhi, and the guy from the Milwaukee Bucks with the long last name, I still, I can't, maybe you can help me with that over coffee. But So if Kawhi Leonard walked in here this morning to join us for worship, and he did, at the end of game five, he talked about praying. He talked, so he sounds like a man of faith. But if he walked in here this morning, you might be a little bit excited, am I right? Would that, would that get us excited? So we're drawn towards people who the world says are smart or talented, people in the limelight. But Paul tells the church in Corinth off for the way that they practically worshipped these different leaders and philosophers. He says, most of all, that the gospel is foolishness, that the message of Christianity doesn't make sense. And he sums it up by saying that we preach Christ crucified. That was kind of the climax of the first chapter. That's what we're about. And so that's where we stopped reading last week. And we're going to pick it up in verse 26 of chapter 1. But first, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are full of surprises. You, although you represent the most powerful force in the universe, you... Come at us gently. You come alongside us. You invite us. You are a friend. Help us more and more to understand you that way. Not as something strange. Not as something that we don't understand. But as someone who wants the best for us. Someone who can renew us, who can breathe life into us. And would you do that today as we look into your scriptures? Would you make these words real for us? Would they become words of eternal life for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're reading from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, starting at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, writes Paul, Think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom. And here, Paul starts talking about wisdom in a positive way. A message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we... We have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I find Paul's writing to be a bit hard to wrap my head around, especially the first time I read it. He writes these packed sentences. You can think of it as as the thick grade A steak, maybe you're longing for this afternoon. It is meaty, it is solid, and you kind of have to chew on it. So that's not the best steak, though, is it? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, no analogy is perfect. But the main message that he has for us here is that we have been given the Holy Spirit. And what a gift the Spirit is. If you've put your trust in Christ, 
If you have called him Lord, then you have the gift of the Holy Spirit too. And the Spirit knows God. The Spirit is from God. So that we can understand what God has provided. So that we can have the mind of Christ. And what an incredible thing that is. To think like Christ. To see like Christ. To be like Christ. To become more and more like him. It's exactly, almost exactly nine years ago that I stood up here in front of you for the very first time. I think it was June the 3rd, 2010. I remember that day. I was terrified. I was preaching for the call. That's what they call it when a congregation is searching for a new minister and invites someone who the search committees interviewed to come and to preach so that the whole church can hear them. I spent a lot of time praying and preparing for that morning. I took a sermon that I got an A-plus on in preaching class at Knox College, and I made it better, or so I thought. I worked and worked some more on it. But when I stood up here that morning, none of that mattered. I looked out at all the people, and I felt completely inadequate. I I thought to myself, what am I doing here? I remember praying, God, I can't do this. And praying one of the most basic prayers we can pray. Help. Just help. And to top it all off, everyone who was here was dressed up and I hadn't worn a tie. And so that, I got some looks, I can tell you. Yeah. (laughs) No, I got some comments afterwards, but they were in good humor. God did help me on that occasion, and he called me and my family to Courtright, and we moved to Guelph. He took my preparation, inadequate as it was, and he breathed his life into it. And I believe that's what he does every week. By his extraordinary grace, whether it's a Sunday when, when I feel like it's gone well, or when I feel like it really hasn't. The Holy Spirit takes the words that God, I trust, has given me and speaks to us as a church through them, builds us up, brings us together on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. But I knew all of that that morning and I was still afraid. Have you ever felt that way about a challenge you were facing? Maybe as you are preparing to speak in public? Or perhaps there's something going on right now in your life for which you feel inadequate, a challenge you're facing, and you're afraid that you're going to fail. That, most of all, I think, is where the Holy Spirit meets you. When you own up to that sense of failure, when you confess it to God. In the passage we read, Paul invites the Corinthians to remember that they were called in weakness, that they became wise only because the Spirit revealed God's wisdom to them, not because they figured it out, and that they had the mind of Christ, which is Christ crucified. So what does that mean to us? Well, it means that our weakness, our failure, is exactly what God is looking for. He's not looking for the smartest the most eloquent, the bravest, the wisest people to be part of what he's doing in the world. 
No, he meets us in our inadequacy and our weakness. Paul starts by reminding the Corinthian Christians where they've come from. It turns out the large majority of them were not wise by human standards, which means they were uneducated, most of them. They were not influential, which means they weren't rich. Although next week we'll see in chapter 11 of this letter that there were some rich Corinthian Christians and that was causing problems in the church. And also Paul says they were not, most of them, of noble birth. So they weren't well connected. And yet God chose them in their weakness. And he chooses us the same way. To show us the truth about who we are and what really matters in life. So that no one may boast before him. Now, why would God care about the boasting of human beings? He doesn't feel threatened by that, right? He cares about it because when we boast in our own strength, it's like we're in a delusional state, a state that actually leads us away from God and his salvation. You can think of our pride in that regard as a a kind of blindness. My son Callum was making ramen yesterday. You know, ramen, these instant noodles. Now, when you make ramen, it's not rocket science. You open a pack of dry noodles and you drop them into a pot of boiling water and then you add this small magical package of artificial flavor and MSG. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. As he was doing this, as he was finishing up actually, Calm said, and I quote, it feels good to be the world's best ramen chef. So Callum clearly was boasting about his ability to make instant noodles. And he was joking too, of course. It was funny. We laughed. Of course, he gets his great sense of humor from his dad. (laughs) No, that was fact. That wasn't, that was, I'm just stating a historical fact here. All of us, we boast like that, right? But when we do, even if we sound like we're joking, there's a sense in which we're not. We often think pretty highly of ourselves, whether it's our noodles or our funny jokes or our abilities to get things done, our gifts. Essentially, we're double-minded. On the one hand, we're proud and we boast. At the same time, we are anxious and insecure. We often feel like a failure We know when we're honest that we're not good people, that we're selfish and petty. So how can we stop boasting ourselves? How can we stop entering into that delusional state? Well, Paul says, go back to when you first became a Christian. He says, at that point, you recognized how badly you needed help, that you couldn't make it in life on your own, that you were a sinner. And so you turned to God and you depended on his grace. Except... I said that wrong. You didn't turn to God. He chose you. Paul makes makes that very clear here. So you can't boast because the only reason you are in Christ, the only reason you're a Christian, the only reason you have his wisdom and have inherited his righteousness, his holiness, his redemption, these priceless things, all of that is because he chose you. You know, I sometimes make bad Presbyterian jokes about predestination. But here we have the doctrine of predestination, actually election here. 
as something that grants us the greatest freedom, the greatest peace. Because if we found God, people talk like that, right? I found God, I found religion. Then somehow it was up to us. And if we managed it, we are going to be proud, of course, because it means we're better than the next guy. But no, that is not what happened. God chose us in his mercy. It's got nothing to do with you being better than anyone else. Our value to him isn't based on what we can do. He doesn't use us that way. We're valuable to him in the purest of loves. So much so that he sent his son to die for us. The next thing Paul does is talk about himself in a similar vein. He says that he came to Corinth in weakness and with great fear. And I'd encourage you, if you didn't do that after last week's sermon, to pick up your Bible this week and read Acts 18, which tells the story of Paul going to Corinth. Now, we think that Paul's talking about his health here, that he was sick, and that's the weakness he's referring to. But also, it's possible that he was dealing with some kind of anxiety, some kind of depression, some kind of challenge in that chapter in his life. And so he didn't speak to them with eloquence and human wisdom as he shared the gospel with them. Maybe because he couldn't, because he was sick, maybe because he chose not to, to model something to them. It's not entirely clear. But one thing is clear. He says that he resolved to know nothing while he was with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This verse is the key to this whole passage. I hope you're here today because you believe God has called you, that he chose you to be in Christ. So here's my question for you. Why, why do you feel the frustration you feel in your life right now, the disappointment? Why are you struggling in your faith? Why is there division and not as much peace in your life as you would like to have? All of that, I want to suggest, is because you need the Holy Spirit to empower you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified while you're with whomever you're with. So who are you with? Paul doesn't say in the abstract that he resolved to know nothing except Christ crucified. He says that with them, in community with them, who are your people? Your family, your friends, maybe your co-workers, your neighbors. Who are you with? Think of a relationship in your life right now where there is conflict rather than peace. Could you be with that person or those people and know nothing with them except for Christ crucified? What would that look like? Because that changes everything. That is the kind of initiative that transforms communities, families, friendships, marriages, you name it. That's the demonstration of the Spirit's power that Paul is talking about. This is the first time in 1 Corinthians that Paul's referenced the Holy Spirit. Paul isn't talking about spiritual fireworks here, like speaking in tongues. What he's talking about is humility. He's talking about depending on God, trusting him, especially when we're suffering. 
The Holy Spirit points us to Christ always. And where we see Christ most clearly in all of his truth and glory is at the cross. This thing that makes no sense, that the God of the universe, with all his power and might, would give himself up to die on a cross in the most barbaric way. And as we see that, as we grasp that, we're called to respond in turn by laying down our self-interest as we are sent out to serve others in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the demonstration of the Spirit's power that Paul is talking about. That we move from being self-interested people to being people who respond to God's will. Obey it. Serve others. Love like God teaches us to love. Now that could so easily become a source of pride for us, that we are spiritual people. We know this Holy Spirit. We hear from the Holy Spirit. And those people over there are not. But the Spirit recoils from attitudes like that. The Spirit cannot work with pride, with proud people like that. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is with you today? You may pray to God daily. You may recognize that Jesus died on the cross to redeem you. But when did you last see the Holy Spirit at work in your life? He is ready to come alongside you in your weakness. We lead busy lives, right? And I think one of the great dangers we face is that we can forget who we truly are with God. But the Spirit always points us back to Christ. I want to invite you to ask him to prompt you this week to reveal himself to you, to show you in the everyday things where he wants you to take action, who he wants you to pray for, to change your attitude towards scripture and God's word so that you would look forward to reading it so that you would draw strength from it. But we have other priorities, don't we? The Internet's algorithms search us and know us. They will match you with your heart's desire. i got to say, Facebook has figured me out. Facebook has nailed my worldly weakness. Most pastors have this. I'm finding more and more ads pop up for church growth how to transform your church with a six-step program that you got to pay a fair bit of money for into something massive, something spectacular. These ads hold up the promise of success, increased numbers, influence, popularity, power, the best special offering results ever! I didn't click on that one. Sorry, sorry. What is it for you? Often it's a good thing that becomes a God thing for us. It's a good thing that we start little by little to worship. Family, romance, your career, money, possessions, your looks, some project or hobby or interest you have, keeping up appearances, being respectable. All these things are good things that can become God things for us that can become sources of pride 
and that blind us to what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal. Paul ends this chapter with a promise to see us through these challenges we face. He says that we have the mind of Christ. What does it mean? What does that mean to have the mind of Christ? For starters, it doesn't mean that we should know nothing. Paul says that, but he doesn't really mean he knew nothing when he came to Corinth. What he's saying is that he was focused on Christ most of all. Paul isn't saying, don't go to university or you'll lose your faith. I've heard Christians say that to my horror. Christian faith has never been anti-intellectual. Not at its best. Not as God wants it to be. One of the things I'm most excited about with our new year-round single service is that we're going to have time on Sundays to do adult adult discipleship groups and courses before or maybe after the service. We have so much to learn about the mind of Christ. I love the way that John Stott puts this. And John Stott was one of my mentors through reading his books who taught me that the Christian life isn't Sunday morning. It's not singing songs and praying and sermons. He asks, what is a Christian mind? Let me tell you what it isn't. The Christian mind is not a mind preoccupied with religious topics. A Christian mind is a mind that is speaking the will of God in relation to our home and our job, our community and citizenship, our politics and economics, our culture, global inequality, human rights, the arts, the environment, unemployment, and other issues of social ethics. The Christian mind grapples with everything from a Christian perspective. A Christian mind is a Christian mindset that has absorbed the totality of the biblical revelation. How does Paul sum up that totality? He says, we preach Christ crucified. The cross is the lens through which we see all these things. Jean Vanier had the mind of Christ like that. Vanier died earlier this month. He was one of my heroes. If you don't know him, he was a Canadian theologian and philosopher, a great humanitarian who founded L'Arche in 1964. L'Arche offers homes and programs and support networks for people who have intellectual disabilities. Today, there are 147 L'Arche communities in 35 countries around the world. Vanier said that he learned wisdom from his friends with developmental disabilities. He had nothing to offer them. They were not impressed with his big words and his fancy degrees. They were weak and they were honest in their weakness. They forced him to let go of his self-preoccupation, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, get things. And these friends of his invited him to let down his guard, to be honest and vulnerable, to learn to love. Vanier writes, Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who take care of the poor and the weak. He said, blessed are we when we are poor, when we are weak and broken. It is there that God loves us deeply and pulls us into deeper communion with himself. Growth begins when we start to accept our own weakness. 
I am struck, he writes, by how sharing our weakness and difficulties is more nourishing to others than sharing our qualities and our successes. Are we a community in which we can be weak with each other, where we can be vulnerable? How is the Holy Spirit prompting you to reach out to someone that way right now? Three weeks ago, I shared a story about a friend of mine, a friend I've had for 20 years who criticized me harshly. I sat down with him and he laid into me. And I wasn't expecting it. I thought it was unfair. I was angry. And then the Holy Spirit started to work on my heart. And then I made the mistake of using it as a sermon illustration. (laughs) Because who knows what would have happened. I mean, I'm as resistant to the Spirit as the next guy. But partly because I confessed this to you, It was that day when we did table communion. Remember that? Some of you are still recovering from that, I think. (laughs) Partly because I confessed that to you, I took action. And I'm meeting with him on Tuesday. So you can pray for that if, if it comes to mind for you. And... I wonder about this issue of confession. You know, we hide from each other so much. If you have never confessed trouble in your life, hurt in your life, weakness, sin, to someone in the church, within our courtright community, I urge you to do that to start to build a relationship with someone, the time will never feel right. Do it anyway. Because God will use that. The Spirit rushes into that openness, that vulnerability, and changes your heart, enriches us together as his church. I look around the city of Guelph these days and I see renewal. I see trees budding, I see flowers blooming, grass growing. I want us to experience that same renewal. You know, I thought, crazy rain last night, right? I thought about that. The Holy Spirit is like a hurricane. The Spirit meets us in the storms of our lives, and then the next morning, you can feel the green. Do you know what I mean? You can feel the growth. I want that renewal for all of us and for our church. So ask the Holy Spirit to be with you as you read 1 Corinthians this week or whatever it is you're reading in Scripture. Ask Him for a verse that would be the words of the Spirit to you for renewal in your life starting now. Whether it's renewal in a spiritual discipline like the habit of reading the Bible daily or the discipline of prayer or whether it's renewal in a fractured relationship where you feel like you're at the end of your rope, but God says, no, I can do what seems impossible. Wherever you go this week and whoever you're with, resolve to know nothing while you are with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I offer these words by one of our greatest hymn writers, Isaac Watts, to guide you in that. When I survey the wondrous cross, 
on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except for in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Lord, in our weakness, may we be reminded of your strength. In our search for wisdom, Holy Spirit, would you point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we see his head, his hands, his feet. May we see your suffering, Jesus, on our behalf and receive the hope of your resurrection to come and your renewing presence in our lives every day. Amen.